All right, we'll grab your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, as Nate said, my name is Jim Fickert. I am the pastor of Communion Church in Mount Vernon, um, and I get to preach the second now of this sermon series for you, um, which is a three-part sermon series on church planting. Um, as he said, it's kind of out of order. This is really the first one, so this is the kind of the introduction, big picture one, as you will see. Um, but this whole series was developed and will be preached by pastors of the Three Strand Network. So we wrote this sermon series together, and then we're kind of sharing, uh, preaching it. And it's, um, it is a treat for me to be here specifically uh, to talk to you about this topic, um, because Roots was a church plant out of Communion Church. For those of you who are newer, probably don't, might not know that, um, this church was planted out of Communion Church in Mount Vernon um, with the help of the Three Strand Churches. So uh, a lot of what we're talking about today, this is kind of what that looks like. Um, this, is, this is a picture of that. Um, and so Three Strand is a group of churches covenanted together to strengthen local churches and make disciples in Western Washington. We cooperate together, we share resources, we support one another, um, and we work together on church planting and missions. And so the whole idea is um, that we're there for each other um, when, when it's needed. We, we help each other through really difficult times, um, and that we help each other to move forward together. Uh, we have a mission, um, and it's hard for smaller churches um, and newer churches to do kind of the, some of the grand parts of that mission, and so we work together to do that. Um, and so this sermon series is a, a combined effort of those churches. Um, and so the way that this came about is at our retreat um, that we had this last year, we talked and prayed about where God was leading our churches in this region, uh, this region being Western Washington from kind of Seattle to the border. Um, and the overwhelming consensus of all the pastors there is that God wants to see more churches planted in this area. And with that, we believe that he has called us to play a role in that. Now, we don't have a clear definition as to what exactly that role is or timelines or any of those sorts of things. Um, but as we're thinking about this, we came to the conclusion, um, uh, we realized, sorry, that the last handful of years with all that's been going on, one of the things that we really haven't spent a lot of time on is talking about church planting. Um, we've been talking about keeping our churches alive. We've been talking about, you know, keeping people from division. We've been talking about all the things that have been going on. But church planting has kind of become something that was in, in some ways backburnered. And so our hope is that in this series, we can start the conversation again, get us excited about the possibilities that God may have for us. And so my part in this and my sermon is titled Church Planting and God's Kingdom. And our anchoring text for this sermon uh, is Matthew 28. Um, and let me just read it and then we will go from there. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, you've probably heard that before. It's pretty well known. That is the Great Commission. Um, the Great Commission acts then as a call for us to share the gospel and spread the good news um, around the world. Um, but today what we're going to look about that is that this is also the key to um, ushering in the kingdom of God. The Great Commission then is not just about making new believers. It's about the work that God is doing to bring about the fullness of his kingdom. Now this term kingdom of God it's kind of a weird one. It's a difficult one to define, uh, but one that we do need to spend a little bit of time on. 
It's important because it was central to the message that Jesus came um, to teach. We see this especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, you have John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist who was sent to prepare the way for the kingdom. And his message was in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He then passes the torch to Jesus, um, right? He says, may I, may, may I decrease so that he may increase. And we see Jesus with the same message in Matthew 4, 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, and he, we see when he sends them, he says, this is the message that you are to take out. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in all of this, we should realize the message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. Now, as you go a little further into the gospel, um, one of the things that you'll see is Jesus starts to talk about the kingdom as something that is to come. Especially in Matthew 24, it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, Jesus says this in verse 14. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, then the end will come. And so Jesus makes it clear that there is a kingdom that is to come. And so in Matthew, we get the sense that the kingdom of God exists. But in other sense, it's something that we're waiting for. Uh, for this reason, uh, uh, we often refer to this kingdom as already and not yet, right? It is here, and yet it is to come. Another term that's used to describe this, and this is your $10 word for the day, is inaugurated eschatology, right? This is the idea that Jesus ushered in the kingdom. It has been inaugurated, but it will be consummated at the end, at the, at the eschatology is of, of the end. So it's here, but it's also to come. And in this time between, or this overlap of the age and the age to come, we are part of the kingdom, and yet we are waiting for the kingdom. Now, I go through all of this to show you that this message of the kingdom is central to Jesus' ministry, and it's important for how we understand ourselves in relation to God's plan. Living in the already but not yet means that we are always waiting, but also that Jesus has kingdom purposes for us as we wait. And so before we get into those specific things that Jesus wants us to do, let's spend a minute defining what the components of the kingdom are so that we can learn to see it. The simplest way to understand the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And from a 500-foot view, this is the Bible. Right? The story of the Bible is the story of God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we see in the first two chapters of Genesis, that's how God created the world, right? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have God's people, Adam and Eve. We have God's place, the Garden of Eden. And they're under God's present rule. It says he walked with them in the garden, and they basically were fully following. He was the one who showed them and told them what was good and right and true. So the earth began as God's kingdom. Um, but as Adam and Eve sinned, it separated us from God. They were removed from the garden. And they began then to follow their own idea of what is good. And the whole next bunch of chapters in Genesis are basically shows how bad all of that gets. How terrible things get when we do what is right in our own eyes. Now this doesn't mean that God was not ruling over his world at that time. He absolutely was. He is sovereign. But that rule was no longer reflected perfectly on earth. And so the next place that we kind of get a picture of the kingdom, we get a, we get a glimpse of what this looks like, 
is at Mount Sinai. And so if you know the story, God, God rescues Israel from Egypt. Um, they go into the wilderness, um, and he brings them to the base of this great mountain. And as they camp there, God is present on the top of the mountain as this great storm, right? He uses this, this power vision to show them and remind them of who he is. And with this, then, he gives them the law. As God does all of this, he makes it clear that what he is doing is bringing the kingdom to earth in a new way. And he states this in Exodus 19, 5. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so there at Sinai, we have God's people, right? Israel, the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We have God's place. And they are under God's present rule, right? He is the storm, he's present, and he's also giving them the law to rule over them. Now in this then, God also gives them a way to make kind of the kingdom mobile. He gives them the tabernacle, right? He gives them this way to kind of carry um, his presence around with them. Uh, His rule is going to be in the midst of the camp no matter where they go. And they carry this across the wilderness into the promised land, um, which becomes the new center of God's kingdom on earth. And then they establish a more permanent Sinai tabernacle in the form of a temple. And while they move from being a God-ruled nation to having a king, they are still God's people. God is present with them, and they exist under his law. Now, the kingdom of Israel goes sideways, um, uh, if you read a little bit later into Israel's history. Um, As the kingdom of Israel falls into shambles, and the people are sent into captivity, the temple is destroyed, all is confused again. But in the midst of this, God continues to remind his people that there's a plan to establish his kingdom fully. And it begins with the coming of a king. And so in um, Isaiah chapter 9, we get this prophecy about the king who is coming, and the terminology that's used to describe him is all about kingdom. This is what it says, and this is another verse you've heard before, usually at Christmas, and I'm not going to sing it. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right? That's just one verse. If you read through the prophets, there's all sorts of prophecy about the coming kingdom. The kingdom is coming. And here in Isaiah 9, we see it's coming as a child. A child who will establish a kingdom of peace and who will rule over his people. Now with all of that background... Think about what it means when Jesus steps into the picture and says, the kingdom is at hand. The king is here. And so as Jesus comes to earth, he has come to establish the kingdom of God. As he gives his life, he does it to atone for the sins of his people, to purchase for himself God's people. Jesus also makes it clear that he is going to rule his people. And the place that they will most experience the kingdom from that time moving forward is in the church. This is the way Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 16. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the name Peter or Petra means rock, and so Jesus is kind of doing a word play here. He's saying, on this rock, I will build my church. And so this is, this is in church history, a very argued over passage. What does this all mean? Um, who is Jesus going to build his church upon? And I would say it's not Peter himself. It's the confession he just gave. He's responding to what Peter just said. And this is because a few verses earlier, Jesus is asking them, who do the people say I am? Who do the people say I am? The disciples were giving him all these things. He said, yeah, yeah, okay. This is what it, I'll just read it. Matthew 16, 15. It says, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is what will build the church. That confession is what is going to go out and change the hearts of people and draw them into relationship with God. Right? This is the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king who was promised. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, his kingdom is now manifested in a new way through the gathered body of believers. And so the church is, and Nate actually said this in his prayer, an outpost of the kingdom of God. That's such a, a great way to think about it. This is a, a glimpse of the kingdom of God right here. The church will be the power of God in the world, and Jesus promises the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus gives the keys, the authority of God to the church to bring his rule and his order to earth. And then Ephesians 3.10 gives us a summary of all this when it says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so we see God's people, Christians, the church, in God's place gathered together under his present rule, which is the authority that he's given to the church to live under. All right, one more verse. Peter, well, not, <laughs> there's a lot more verses, but one more verse right now. Um, in 1 Peter 2, Peter kind of wraps all this up together for us. Uh, he references the Old Testament. He brings, this is what he says. This is 1 Peter 2, 9. Talking now to the church, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we are a people who have been set apart uh, by God as holy, but also called to be an active part of his kingdom. We are tasked with proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The confession that God has promised will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And so we are to live this out as we await the final kingdom, where God's place will be universal, his rule will be all-encompassing, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the kingdom in fullness. That is what we are waiting for and looking forward to. This kingdom come, the new heavens and the new earth, are described to us in Revelation 21, where it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with him as their God. That's the fulfillment. That's the conclusion. That's what we're all moving towards. This, this whole story of creation is moving towards. We look forward to a kingdom complete. Now the problem is, we live in the time in between. Where the kingdom has been established but not yet fulfilled. We live with the assurance that the gospel provides and with the promise of what is to come. And so as we live, we should be praying both, um, well, Jesus would come again, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are praying for that fulfillment, that end, while we also do our part to connect this world to the values and the orders of God's kingdom. God even put this idea into um, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Right in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so knowing where this whole story is going, we should do our small part to connect the will of God to the world we live in. That's my intro. Right? With that... Let's get into the Great Commission, the way that Jesus now summarizes how we should spend our time and energy, the part that we have in the kingdom. First, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, this is Jesus reassuring his disciples that the power that he is giving them is his to give. Now, his disciples know that he has authority. They've been following around. They've been seeing the miracles. They've been hearing the teaching. Um, but he reconfirms his authority and his power because he's about to make a statement about power. He's going to tell them um, that the way that God's kingdom is going to be manifested is through them. And so he begins by assuring them that this sending is being done with authority, which is huge. Because to be honest, in our lives, there are a lot of people telling us a lot of things about how we should be living. And if you haven't heard enough, you can get on the internet. There's millions of voices that have an idea of how you should live, and they, don't have, they have no problem telling you all about it. Right? Most of these people, we have the absolute right to ignore. It's wonderful. Right? But when the one who has all authority on heaven and on earth comes to us and says, this is how you are to live, we better listen. Not only because he has the wisdom and, and foresight to give good direction, but because the imperatives that he is giving have an authoritative power. It's not just that we are going and doing things. We are doing the things of God. God is going to do these things through us. He is doing and working in the world, and he invites us to be part of it. And I was just talking to someone, actually, in the mingle portion um, of just how amazing that is and how we should never forget that. The God of the universe has invited us to be part of the, the, the plan that he has, the work of building his kingdom. And sometimes we just kind of go, yeah, that's kind of cool. I've heard that. No, 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 no. The God of the universe has invited us to play a part in building his kingdom that should never become normal to us. That is absolutely crazy and pretty awesome. Right? And so what does he tell us to do? What are we supposed to do with this authority? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Um, now at the point that he's saying this, um, uh, Christianity does not have a very large footprint. At the time that he is making this declaration, it's basically a bunch of guys gathered on a hillside and then kind of some people around who are like, maybe. Um, it's not, Christianity is not a big deal at this point. 
And so the go here is the encouragement to take this gospel message out from this central point to the rest of the world. We get to hear a similar call from Jesus in Acts chapter 1, um, when he's gathered with his disciples again. Um, this is uh, verses 6 through 11 of Acts 1. He says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Oh, that's an interesting question. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I have to say, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Certainly, um, anyway, you'll see why in a second, but there's this beautiful picture. I can totally imagine how awesome and awkward this whole situation was for them. Like, there's certain ones where you're reading, you're like, yeah, I don't. this one, I'm like, I can imagine being there and being like, what in the world is happening, right? So it starts with them going like, Jesus, you've been talking about the kingdom. You've been talking about the kingdom. You've been talking about the kingdom. Are we ready? Is this the time that you will establish the kingdom? They're eager. They want to see this happen. He's been, he's been telling them about what is going to be. And so Jesus tells them um, the age, uh, the, the, sorry, the time of, of, of when that will happen is not their concern. There's an important thing to remember when um, wars are going on in the Middle East. Just, I'll just say it. Uh, people like to start going like, oh, is it the end? Like, like, calm down. It is not our main concern to figure out when the end is. Ours is to focus on what God has given us to do, right? That's what Jesus says. Stop worrying about that. This is, this is what you need to focus on. You will receive the Holy Spirit, which is God's presence with us, and you will become witnesses of the kingdom. And so they were to take this message of Jesus to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the part that I love. Then Jesus finishes saying that. He's kind of like, this is what you need to do. And then he's like, and he just goes up. Like, he doesn't even tell him, like, I'm about to go, guys. He just, like, <laughs> and then it just kind of says that they stare at the sky. And I imagine this, like, I have a bunch of kids. Like, when, you, when a kid lets a balloon go at a party on accident, and all the kids just kind of watch it, I think I can still see it. No, no, that's not it, right? And they're at least mesmerized enough that they don't notice two men in white robes standing there, right? They're just kind of like, what is happening? And all of a sudden, it's like, men of Galilee. Wake up. He gave you something to do. You've been tasked. You've been sent out. You've been called. It is your time to now go and do. You have a mission. Jesus will return. The kingdom will be fulfilled. That's been promised. It's right here. Right? But for now, go and do what he has called you to do. And so the rest of the book of Acts is them doing what Jesus called them to do. Right? In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Peter goes out. Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, but then... The story of, or the book of Acts is the story of how Christianity goes from a group of guys in a room terrified to being the force across all of Asia Minor. And we can kind of extrapolate from that now. We are across the world 2,000 years later, praising Jesus. Imagine how much has happened between then and here. And so the call to take the message of the gospel to make disciples is not just, though, about geographical expanse. It's also about getting the truth of God into all the corners of our society, 
right? It's not just about going further, it's about going deeper. And so we should be sharing the gospel with our families and our neighbors and our coworkers. That's usually what you hear from the Great Commission, right? And that's a very important part of it. The church should be continuing to bring this to the nations through missions, but we also should be working to bring the gospel into every part of our culture. And I will say, one of the best ways to reach the unchurched and to disciple more people is to plant more churches. Studies have shown the average new church gains most of its membership, 60 to 80%, from the ranks of people who were not attending any worshiping body. While churches over 10 to 15 years old of age, which is, which is the church I pastor now, gain 80 to 90% of new members by transfer from other congregations. This means that the average new congregation will bring six to eight times more new people into the body of Christ than an older congregation of the same size. And it's not just about, it's not just about the people who are converted for the first time. It's also the people who are just kind of floating. Maybe some of you are these people, right? You're kind of going to church. You're like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm here. Um, but you get connected to a church where you have a place, where actually they, they, they empower you to take on more of the responsibility. And all of a sudden, you, you have a new sense of what this mission and what this call is. You go from being a Christian in name only to actually being a Christian on mission. Church plants fuel that. So the rest of the Great Commission builds on this. Next part of it says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now when we baptize someone, we're pointing to the salvific work of God in their life. But we're also baptizing them into the church. This is what we see happen in Acts 2. So I kind of gave a precursor to this, right? The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. Peter goes out and he preaches really, really good sermon, Right? <laughs> He gets up and he just preaches this sermon and um, it's amazingly convicting. He declares Jesus the Messiah. And then in verse 37, it tells us this. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he, <laughs> I like that, like, he said some other stuff. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they heard the truth and let's be clear, they heard the truth because the Holy Spirit was with the words. It wasn't just a great sermon. They repented of their sin. They placed their full and complete hope in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it says those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What were they added to? They were added to the church. Right, as we saw earlier in 1 Peter 2, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's what's happening in baptism. We are signifying this is a person who did not belong to God's people. Now they are part of God's people. So as God puts his sign and seal on people in baptism, they become part of the church body. Now this is the starting point for discipleship. And I'll say this because too often evangelicals put all the focus on making believers but making disciples takes much more time than just initial belief in baptism. 
It's the long process of sanctification. It's God working his truth into our lives. And so we need the starting point. Let's not get rid of the starting point, right? We need to make more believers. But these people need to be baptized into the church so that they can have people to walk them through the work of becoming a disciple. And so one of the best ways to assure that people are going to be part of the church community is to have a lot of churches to choose from, right? Every church has a style, and people feel at home in different places. And we push back against that, and we say it's not about style, but the truth of the matter is people have something about them. People are attracted to different things, and honestly, it's not always a good or bad. Sometimes it's just different. Last night at my house, I was talking to an Anglican archbishop, um, just because, and we were talking about how different how different our churches are, how different uh, the people in our churches are. But we were also talking about how amazing it was that we were both preaching the same gospel and building the same kingdom. We were working together on something in very different ways. And yet I have no doubt that walking down the streets of heaven someday, I'm going to bump into him in a really cool hat. (laughs) Probably. And so when it comes to this sort of um, aspect, younger adults have always been disproportionately found in newer congregations. And as I look around, I could say that's somewhat confirmed here. Um, You might not know this, but a lot of churches, um, there isn't a young person. Um, They don't have to bring babies out of the service in the middle because they're making noise. That is a beautiful thing, such a wonderful thing. Um, That is not necessarily the norm in the church today. Um, younger adults, uh, younger, yeah, have always been drawn to newer congregations. Long-established congregations tend to develop traditions, which reflect the sensibilities of the long-time leaders from older generations. We usually call that tradition. Things get set in place. Certain leaders, certain people are giving more money, and I know it shouldn't be that way, but certain people have more of a stake in the congregation, and, and it tends to steer things in a very specific way. Whereas newer congregations are like, we don't have anyone. Um, if you can do something, you better show up or we're not going to have a service. And for some of you who have been here from the beginning, you know what that's like. Kind of like, I learned how to do things I didn't know how to do before because the church needed it. Um, And so younger churches have always um, been able to reach um, the young and and, and reach into places where the gospel isn't much more easily than longer established bodies. Um, that's just the way that it is. Um, now, I'm not saying that, that older bodies are, are bad. Churches, um, we need more established churches. That's a very important part of this whole process. Um, and actually, I'd say that that's what the next part of the, 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 the Great Commission really points to. So let's not get ahead of myself. The next portion is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, to do the work of making disciples then requires time and teaching, as we've said Um, It's the work of the pastors to preach, the mature believers to mentor the younger believers, a community of people to support one another through difficult times, right? Reminding one another the truth of God in the midst of doubt and pain and suffering. Um, And the young, especially those who are young in their faith, need the example and relationship of those who have been faithful over time. And I think this is true of churches, not just of as individuals. Um, The Bible describes the church as a body where every part has a function and is needed, um, which is the way of saying this is not a machine. It's not about just filling holes. We're not a cog in some larger um, um, thing. Uh, The body mentality is more of a posture that we have towards one another. How do we understand the other people who we uh, minister and are um, in community with? What the Bible says is it's the job of each person in the church to serve others and to help them grow. 
It's to set aside our self-centeredness to learn to care for one another and to care for God's kingdom above all else. And so if we are going to teach all that Jesus has commanded, it's going to be with this posture. It's going to be with the posture of loving each other and saying, how can I help build up those around me? Jesus taught his disciples this when he washed their feet. Right? The way that we act as a church, um, the people of the kingdom, is one of the greatest means by which we disciple and are taught and developed. And so to plant more churches is to create more bodies and communities where this is happening, to, to create more outposts of the kingdom all over. To do this effectively requires established churches coming alongside these younger, newer outposts of the kingdom. And the benefit flows both ways. Right? There is an energy that comes from the young. There's an energy that comes from new things. There's a wisdom that the older has that help temper the passions of the new. Right? The Bible describes this to us in Titus chapter 2 individually. We need the younger, younger. We need the older. Um, it's the same of churches. We need the established. We need the new. We need the vibrant and the, and the ones that can change real quickly. We need the ones that do not change when everything around them is. The older have the benefit of time. The younger tend to have the urgency of the present. The church needs both, and they need each other. And so part of church planting is to basically say, if, if that needs to continually be part of what exists within the church, then we need to keep going, we need to keep moving, we need to keep planting in order to keep that as part of the larger body of Christ. All right, Jesus finishes the Great Commission by saying, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so in the same way that this, the statement of authority at the beginning was given to provide confidence and power, this promise at the end gives us both a mo motivation and a reason not to fear. What Jesus does, he points to the very end of the age, the final coming of the kingdom, as assurance that all of life and all that we experience is headed towards his glory. If that's where everything's going, if that's how everything is going to end, then it makes no sense for us to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys, or to build up our own little kingdoms, which sometimes means our own little churches, um, or to exist for ourselves. We should not become so focused on building our church that we lose sight of the kingdom. We are building the kingdom of God, not just Roots Church, not just Communion Church. We're part of something much bigger than that, and we need to remember that. So as we do this work, we are assured that it is his strength that will carry us through. We need not worry because God is with us to the very end of the age, which gives us freedom to take risks, to do somewhat crazy things like church planting that are challenging and that are costly because we know that God will be with us along the way. So it's my job in this series to place church planting into the greater kingdom of God, um, and hopefully I did some of that. Uh, but I want to end, and I want to make it very clear that he builds the church. That's what he told Peter all the way back. I will build my church. And so while Peter and the apostles got to be part of it, while we are invited to be part of it, um, Jesus is the cornerstone. Without him, nothing is built. And so before we start talking about church planting or, or buildings or budgets, we must rest on the truth of the gospel. That is the message that we share. That is the power that is going to go out and do any of the work that is going to be done. This is the way that every single one of us has been invited into the people of God.
And so one of the ways that we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done is through the sacrament of communion. As Jesus gives this to his disciples, he gave it to be the strength that carried them along, an extension of I will be with you. But as he gives it to them, he also reminds them they they will partake in this until he comes again. He points forward to the end of the age, reminding them there is an end that you're working towards. Pull that eternal kingdom forward. Live in the light of what will be.